When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, it's me, Kimmy, and this is All the Wiser, a show about hope and possibility on the other side of pain. And if you're new here, welcome. You are among friends. And when I say friends, I mean the best kind of people, the kind that will walk alongside you on your darkest days, the kind of friends that leave you a little note or a text to make you laugh when the idea of simply leaving your bed feels like too much. Our listeners are deep thinkers, deep feelers, and the kind of people who have been through some shit. Or maybe you are someone who's going through some shit right now. And the woman you are about to meet, well, she is right there with you. Because in 2017, her husband of 10 years murdered their seven-year-old daughter. And since we don't believe in comparative suffering on this podcast, At the very least, for the next hour, you don't get to either. Instead, here is what I want you to believe. I want you to believe that you can survive whatever it is you are going through. You can and you will. I want you to know that I see you and that I'm with you. And this episode, this one's for you. I like to think of myself as a hope warrior. I always have, even when I didn't know that that was my, you know, spidey secret sauce superpower, choose your phrase. I have always looked for where we can find the light, where the new spring starts in our lives. Michelle Horde grew up in the Midwest with a loving, supportive, and ambitious family. Her father became the first black man to sell shoes in the state of Indiana. Up until that point, black men were not allowed to touch the foot of a white woman. And that sounds insane to us today. It sounds even more insane when you realize it happened in the 60s. This is in the 1860s, right? Like this is in recent history. But what's so powerful is that with my mother's partnership and love and with his hunger, He started in those humble beginnings, and by the time I was in high school, my father was the president of Nine West Shoes, which at one point was the largest non-athletic shoe company in America. And I often joke with people that I feel like I earned an MBA at the dinner table. As a little girl, Michelle's mother was the center of her universe. She was an elementary school teacher, a loving wife, a devoted daughter, And as Michelle describes her, unbreakable. When Michelle was in her early 20s, her mother, who was 50 and perfectly healthy, died suddenly from a brain aneurysm. At the same time, Michelle's grandmother was dying from lung cancer. So within the course of 90 days, I lost my mother and my mother's mother, which felt like a complete disconnection from my feminine chain in my life. Yeah, and at the time was an unimaginable grief for you. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. I mean, it. you know, certainly you have some people in your life or that you hear of who lose a parent early, but it was the combination of a sudden death, an unexpected death, and being 24. And it taught me a lot about grief at a young age. You know, it taught me that people react in all sorts of wacky ways. One of my favorite lines in all of literature is from the bluest eye, people love the way they are, and people grieve the way they are. And so if everything's about them, somehow what happened to you is about them. You know, some people are afraid that if they spend too much time to you, it's like a tragedy disease, maybe they can catch it. But I learned so much at that early age about 
understanding who may be there for you, who may not be able to be there for you, and that when you lose someone, everyone in the family loses someone different. Everyone that loved that person loses someone different, even your sibling. So respecting how people grieve differently, how they respond differently. So as you explained, you experience grief and understanding it on a deep level, living with it, how the world around you experiences your grief and your loss. You would also have a front row seat to grief and grieving families in your professional life. Like me, you had a dream of working in television and storytelling and found yourself early in your career at America's Most Wanted. And I think most of our audience will know America's Most Wanted and and have memories. But for those who don't, it was, I think it was one of the longest running crime shows, true crime, which has a different connotation now in history. And John Walsh was the host. His son, Adam, was murdered at six years old by a serial killer, which was the impetus of his life's work. And he was this incredible change maker in this space, much of which was through this show. And his team, which you were a part of, captured more than a thousand fugitives. So the structure of the show was the reenactments by the actors sketches and photographs with a 1-800 number so people could be looking to find these people. And there was also interviews. That is where you come in. Producers, they often call bookers. They're booking the interviews. But tell us more about that time and what you were witnessing up close. Yeah, so I was a journalism major in college. I took myself very seriously um, in my early 20s. And it just so happened because I refused to leave DC after school that some of the other big J jobs were not available. And there was America's Most Wanted. So I would not have imagined it as a place to launch my career. So many people, you know, have launched their careers there. There was a fun email chain among those of us that worked there the other day about the fact that Brendan Fraser's first job was as like a dead person in a reenactment for America's Most Wanted. A lot of directors got their start there. But my specific job after spending some time there as a production assistant was working as what they called the missing child coordinator. And certainly closest to to John Walsh's heart were missing children based on, as you mentioned, his experience with his son, Adam, and losing his son to a kidnapping. And so we had a partnership way before the internet and social media with the Fox affiliates, uh, because the show was on Fox, that we would do a public service announcement whenever a child went missing. And because the first 24 to 48 hours were the most valuable if you were going to be able to find the child, and unfortunately that didn't happen often, I had my 1-800-SKY-PAGER, and it would go off at any time. And if it was a call about a missing kid case, I would immediately spring into action to get that PSA out and then to get on a plane and go wherever that story was happening. And it was a really, really, I think as I look back now, I didn't understand at the time what a unique position it was. Because yes, I was a producer and a booker, but I also wound up being a therapist and a trauma counselor. You know, because I was representing America's Most Wanted and we worked with the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children, I didn't walk in the door as a TV show. I walked in the door as someone representing John Walsh who could help them. And so it gave me this very unique and privileged view to people enduring the worst possible nightmare in the middle of the nightmare. And it's something that really stuck with me throughout my career and frankly, even my personal life. When I think about trauma, when I think about what the human spirit can do, that just ordinary people, people you'd pass in the supermarket, people who didn't have necessarily extraordinary means or or jobs or 
probably wouldn't have a million Instagram followers today. We're just ordinary mothers and fathers who were struck down with tragedy and somehow they got up and they got out of bed and they talked to me and they made decisions and they took care of their other children. And it was so fascinating to watch what we as humans are capable of enduring when we have to. And so that was so much of what I took away from that job. Yeah, I get that. That makes a lot of sense to me. So you eventually leave America's Most Wanted and would find your way to working at Good Morning America, where we worked together. Yes. And you would reunite or, you know, begin a new chapter with your ex-husband, who you had met more than a decade before. So tell me about meeting him and, yeah, just sort of the origin of of that relationship. My ex-husband was my brother's RA in college. And so I met him when he brought him home for the weekend, one weekend in my early 20s, and we kept in touch and were friends and you know, traveled all over like you do in your early 20s and weren't really ready to get pinned down into a relationship. And then in my early 30s, when I was at Good Morning America, living in New York, he was living in New York, we started dating. Your ex-husband's name is Neil. And I know in the book, you refer to him with a different name. Part of that, which makes a lot of sense to me, is that person no longer exists the person that you met and fell in love with. No, absolutely. It it to this day is impossible that the person I met and fell in love with is still physically alive, that the personality that I knew, that the soul I knew. So when I wrote about him, I did change his name. And you've said for the purpose of this conversation, you're comfortable calling him by his legal name, which is Neil? Yes, and thank you so much for asking. Absolutely. So tell me about the decision to get married and start a family. So we dated for several years, and Neil and I were the exact same age, and I always wanted to be a mother. I mean, frankly, I probably wanted to be a mother more than I wanted to be a wife, but I was in my mid-30s. I knew that I wanted to start a family. And so Neil and I were married in our late 30s, and miraculously, given everything I knew about my body and everything I'd been told, we very easily um, were able to get pregnant. And I gave birth to our beautiful daughter, Gabrielle, when I was 39 years old. After how many hours of labor? It was long. It was, I mean, it's one of those stories you don't tell a pregnant woman. (laughs) I I, I think if I recall, it was about 26 hours. I was determined to do natural childbirth. Yeah, it was an experience. And I'll tell you, she was worth every single minute of it. Every single minute of it. So this healthy, beautiful baby girl, Gabrielle, arrives in the world. And I really want to just honor her spirit, bring her to life, allow listeners to get to know her. So can you share who she was as a little girl? I mean, the things she did that lit you up, the things that melted your heart, the things that annoyed you. Who was who was she in the world? It was so clear to me from the beginning, and I'm sure every parent feels this way, but that this was an extraordinary child. I remember taking pictures when she was one month old, and there's a picture where she's laughing, and having someone say, oh, she's too young to be laughing. She probably just had gas. Nope, she was laughing. That was my kid. Bubbly, effervescent. Um, The minute she could walk, she was running. She loved everything. She wanted to be an astronaut and Miss America and the president and an engineer. And I was fairly convinced she'd be able to do it all. And she was extraordinarily kind and thoughtful when it came to other children, which I didn't even really completely realize until I had parents tell me. So whether that was a child with different abilities who she invited on a play date who had never been on a play date before or grabbing kids off of the buddy benches at school. I didn't even know what a buddy bench was. 
um, but the buddy benches where kids sit who don't have anyone to play with so that someone can come grab them off to play with them. Gabrielle is the sort of child who would have grabbed young Michelle off of the buddy bench um, when I was a shy, awkward little girl. She was fearless. She was funny as hell. And I knew pretty quickly that she was going to give me a run for my money. I mean, she she was smart and courageous and just the complete light of not only my life, but everyone who was around her just seemed to glow in her presence. You know, the kind of little kid that people stare at in public because of this aura and just yummy, delicious, adorableness. So she was completely the joy of my life. You can see in the pictures just how joy-filled and vivacious. And when you talk about the buddy bench as someone who is a parent and has been around many small children in elementary school, that piece of her says so much because it's such a brave, courageous, and empathetic to be aware of somebody sort of suffering or experiencing loneliness and have the bravery to walk in front of everyone and grab their hand or say, join the group. It's just really something special to witness. And I and I do think it takes courage and awareness and deep empathy at a young age to be that person. Absolutely. And to do it consistently, right? Absolutely. Yeah, it just tells me so much about her, that she was that girl. Eventually, your marriage becomes strained and is fading. So tell me about your decision to end the relationship and separate. You know, I can't imagine there's anyone that has ever entered into a marriage and taken the thought of divorce lightly. We did a ton of counseling. I did a ton of praying and wanted to feel like over the course of years, I had done everything within my power to be honest, to show up. And when it was clear that uh, Neil just was not capable, for whatever reason, of meeting me there, Gabrielle was starting to get older. She was in elementary school. She was aware. Thankfully, it was not a house where there was friction or violence or anything that she would see. But, you know, children can sense things, right? And I have so many friends whose parents stuck it out, and they now stick it out in relationships that they probably shouldn't be in that aren't healthy for them because of that narrative. And so it was really clear to me that while, of course, I did not enter a marriage wanting to get a divorce, of course, that's the last thing I expected The most important thing was that Gabrielle understood she had choices, that she understood what healthy looked like, that she understood grownups could make mistakes and could learn from their mistakes. And so I wanted to model for her that whoever she grew up to be, whoever she grew up to love, that she ultimately was responsible for her own happiness and that she always got to choose. And so I made the really difficult decision to get a divorce. And how old was she at the time? She was eight? When I initially decided she was um, six. And unfortunately, Neil never really got on board. You know, he sort of, it was a horrific process. Um, And I think in general, people have no idea what a nightmare divorce can be, just how it rips people apart, how it can change people, how things happen that you never could imagine. I've talked to so many women that have been through divorce where it feels like someone completely different shows up when it comes to courtrooms and comes to talking about custody and those sorts of things. But Gabrielle was seven by the time the divorce was in process. Michelle had been pushing Neil for months to sign the divorce papers. And then, on June 5th, 
2017, Neil called her and told her that he would sign them. Not wanting to take a chance that Neil would change his mind, Michelle immediately left her office in Manhattan and rushed to meet him and the notary at a UPS store in New Rochelle. And that day, you know, as we sort of unceremoniously have this stranger signing our life away, we joked about the big, amazing wedding that we had that was in Brides Magazine and New York Times wedding section. But as we were leaving, he hugged me and said, I'm sorry about everything I've done. And it felt like such a relief. It felt like, oh my gosh, my friend may still be in there. And so I hungrily, frankly, ate that up and said, thank you so much for saying that. Listen, all that matters we were friends first. We will always be friends. I will always love you. All that matters is that we co-parent Gabrielle. We both love that little girl more than anything on earth. All that matters now is that we do everything we can for her. And so we arranged for me to meet with he and Gabrielle when she got home from school the next day. Um, this was one of the evenings that she would spend the night at her dad's house and so the plan for June 6th was for me to come over to the house when I got off of work and for us to discuss next steps in terms of living arrangements. So at this point, you know, I know you have shared in interviews and in your book the details that followed, but I just want to give you the space and the grace if there is anything that is too painful to revisit just to leave it out. No, I appreciate it. You know what? It's all too painful, but I feel like this is my ministry at this point in my life. And so I have to, you know, so that's, that's a choice that I've made. And I, I sincerely appreciate um, your sensitivity. So I know you said you have this conversation and the signing of the papers, which I imagine felt like a big exhale. <laughs> considering you know everything you've described in the months leading up you go home you have said you had a great night's sleep drive to work the next morning and you get a missed call from your nanny can you share that morning and how it unfolded yeah so you know i had not slept well in ages and Joy, relief, I mean, you know, you name it, euphoria is what I was feeling that evening. I was calling all of my prayer warriors saying, it is finally happening. Thank God we'll be able to move on. I'll be able to move on. And I had already started to make housing arrangements, Gabrielle's summer camp arrangements, you know, arrangements to hire an au pair who was coming in from another country, all the things, right? As, as TV producers and moms, we you know, have 12 arms and do a million things, everything I could to ensure I gave her the cushiest of landings in this new space that we would be living in. On June 6th, I got up whenever we weren't together, I would text her dad with a video to say good morning. I did that. I received a reply that felt like the type of reply she would normally give me. And I went to work. Somewhere midday, I had a quick missed call. Um, as a mom, you're never too far away from your phone. So I probably saw it 30 seconds later. And when I called the nanny back, there was this voice that you just can't imagine, this blood-curdling scream. She had clearly gone to the house, unbeknownst to me, Neil had sent her a text saying that Gabrielle was homesick from school and so she didn't need to come. But she decided she would come anyway to get started on laundry. And she surprised him. She said, there's blood everywhere. And I said, get out of the house, call 911. And I went into like producer mode. At the time, I'm imagining, oh my God, he's killed himself. How am I going to tell Gabrielle? What time does Gabrielle get off of school? I'm not aware of all of the circumstances that he had told her Gabrielle was homesick. The school never reached out to me to say that my daughter had an unexcused absence. And then about five minutes into all of the fury, 
I reached out to a mom who always dropped her daughter off at school and asked if she'd seen Gabrielle that morning. And she said she hadn't. And then it's almost like an ice pick pricked the top of my head. Cold just flowed through my body. And I found one of those little conference room phone booths and went in it and shut the door in the dark and got on my knees and said, God, I don't know what I'm about to walk into, but whatever it is, please give me the strength to withstand it. And so all of a sudden, what seemed like a horrific tragedy became an unimaginable possible tragedy. And a friend drove me home. It felt like the longest drive I've ever been on. And she kept trying to reassure me that Gabrielle was okay, that perhaps she was just hurt, perhaps she was just scared. But I knew, I knew that that smart little girl who knew mommy's phone number by heart by the time she was four or five, if there was a way for her to reach out to me, she would have. I had been at that crime scene on the other side of that police tape a hundred times. And so when we got about two blocks away, a good friend of mine called. No one was returning my calls, which also spoke volumes. Obviously, you go in fast with good news, right? Hey, Michelle, she's okay. Hey, Michelle, she's at the hospital, but she's going to be fine. Hey, Michelle, she's at a neighbor's house. No one's returning my calls. So a friend called and asked how close I was, and I told her. And I will never forget, and I haven't driven down this block ever again, but crossing the stop sign where the townhouse complex came in view and seeing the police lights and seeing the tape and seeing an ambulance and seeing a crowd of people on the street. And the first person I recognized was my pastor. And he almost pulled me out of the car and just grabbed me and whispered in my ear, you know, it's true. It's all true. And Neil is on his way to the hospital. That was the <laughs> the next big shock of the day, that he was somehow alive. And I remember saying to my pastor, you mean that motherfucker didn't have the decency to kill himself? I remember looking over at my mother-in-law, who meant the world to me, who worshipped Gabrielle, who now had a son, her only child, who murdered her only grandchild, and watching her stand there almost catatonic, whispering over and over, I gave birth to a monster, I gave birth to a monster. And somehow, in those moments of extreme trauma, I think the only way we can survive it is to create space from our bodies. And it felt like I had dived into the deep end of a pool and sound and sights and feeling was somewhat fragmented and slower and warped. But somehow it was true that this man who I had known my entire adult life, who had never threatened any violence, who was a jerk, which is why I was divorcing him, who refused to work, which is why I divorced him, but who always seemingly loved our little girl, had murdered our child. How, you know, I don't know where to begin with how you, you process that time of trauma and you, you just spoke to it, but how do you even function in the days and weeks that follow? I don't know. I don't know. I don't know how I do it. I don't know how Trayvon Martin's mother does it. Somehow, you're given what you need when you need it. You know, it's like you're going through a dark forest or you're going through a snowy road. And if you keep stumbling, there are tools laying on the side and you kind of clumsily pick them up as you go. I'm incredibly grateful to have such a huge village of family and friends, people who just rushed in, people from my personal life, people from my professional life, 
who just dropped everything. So I had this unbelievable support system. And in my book, I call it, you know, my army. And I am grateful for that because I don't take that for granted. I know everyone doesn't have that. And so I'm incredibly grateful for that. In that moment, as I was being driven back to my rental house, you know, I grew up in the church. I mentioned my grandfather was a Baptist preacher. A verse came to me, and I Googled it because I wanted to get it right. And it was a verse from the book of Job. Though he slay me, yet do I trust him. It stuck in my head because it felt like, okay, devil, you got me. Worse than I could have imagined as a TV producer that had seen it all, worse than I imagined ever coming to visit me. The kind of thing, frankly, that Neil and I would have watched on local news and said, oh my God, how did that happen? This was worse than my worst nightmare. You know, your worst nightmare is your child gets sick, your child's hit by a drunk driver. Your worst nightmare isn't the person who you would have at one point considered your best friend killing the child that they at one point loved more than anything. You can't comprehend it. I can't comprehend it to this day. But somehow, breath by breath, you keep going. I was determined that there had to be something that I was supposed to do in this world that was so powerful that evil came at me with everything it had. And I was going to be damned if I got taken out. And so I've always been a fighter. You know, that that fighter instinct came in really handy because I was like, F this, F this. You are not taking me out. You are not going to make my daughter's name a true crime story. I don't know how the hell I'm supposed to survive this. I don't know how the hell this happened, but I am not going to fall. And that with my biblical battle cry of though he slay me, yet do I trust him and trying to take it from being aspirational to saying, yes, I still do trust. Yes, I still do believe that there is light somewhere, even though I'm stumbling through the dark. Yes, I'm going to keep walking, even though I want to just lay down and die. That battle cry kept me going and became oxygen for me for a long, long time. Your commitment so early in the wake of her death, I'm going to read a quote from you. It said, it was important that the work and legacy in her name would be 10 times bigger than what happened to her and that what happened to her would not define who she was. I read about the memorial, and when I say early, I think about this memorial that you were able to create for her three months later. It was on a boat. You invited her classmates, her friends, and some of their family to scatter the ashes, and they played her favorite music, and they danced on the deck, and you gave each of them a white rose, and... Already the celebration of her, the legacy of her, and what you said on a deeper level about Gabrielle caring so much about other people is that part of that idea was normalizing grief for these kids who had also lost someone they cared about and well-intended adults tried to shield them, but you were going to show them the love and the legacy and the space to deeply grieve. And it was just so evident to me how quick you went into Mama Bear protecting her in this whole new way when she was no longer on earth with that celebration. Yeah, you know, it's she was in a dual language program. And so it was 40 kids that would go through all of elementary school together when she died, she was in the second grade, and it was half Native English and half Native Spanish-speaking children. And so I was a class mom. I knew these kids really well. When I was in the first grade, my best friend died. It was the 70s. We didn't talk about stuff. It was kind of just this, you know, I have these 
pieces of memory about him and about him dying. And it was years later before I even knew how he died. So experiencing early loss, growing up in a time where you just didn't talk about stuff and hope kids forgot it, I was really moved for Gabrielle, but also for all of those little kids to show up. And so I literally went to the school the week after this happened. I had some of my friends with me. I remember the kids all sitting on the carpet in circle time. I was sitting in front of them um, as if I was going to read a story. Their parents were all in the back with the principal and my friends with like bloodshot eyes. And there were all these little faces looking to me. And I shared with them at that point, and, and this literally was probably, I don't know, a week or two after after I lost her, um, a video from the memorial service, you know, the funeral. Obviously, it didn't make sense for little children to be at the funeral. But one of my dear friends from Good Morning America, a whole team actually, put together an amazing memorial video for her. And so I shared it with them. I talked to them. I didn't pretend. I didn't pretend that things were okay. But what was so important to me, and I think we miss this with children, is as much as we want to, we can't protect them from the things we have no control over. We can't. So our best bet is to be age-appropriately honest, to be able to show our own vulnerability. You want them to feel safe. But I think presenting false hope or, you know, a false image doesn't do them a lot of good either. And so I shared with them that when I was in the first grade, my best friend Willie died. And that it's okay if they were really sad about Gabrielle and wanted to cry. That it's okay if they thought of something funny and wanted to laugh. That all of those feelings were okay and valid. And I took pictures with them that day. My legs about crumbled. (laughs) as I was walking into and out of the classroom. But I felt like it was so important, and that was really the birth of how do I give them an opportunity a few months later to celebrate her? And so I talked to, you know, you know how we producers do. (laughs) I talked to a million people. I talked to, like, child psychiatrists and my therapist and reached out to all of the parents and said, this is what I want to do. Are you okay with me inviting you and your child? And... You know, it was just an unbelievably beautiful, painfully rich day where, you know, the adults tried to choke back tears. And then after this meaningful ceremony, the kids are like jamming to Radio Disney and eating popcorn and cotton candy. And I don't for a minute think that they missed any of it, any of the emotion And I imagine, you know, they're now 13, 14 years old, that they carry it with them still. And my prayer is that somehow this horrific experience they had so early in their childhood, that some of the things I was able to do helped build some of those resilience muscles that life's going to require of them. Yeah, brought tears to my eyes when I read it and just brought (laughs) tears to my eyes hearing you speak about it now. When we come back, Neil is charged and sentenced for the murder of Gabrielle and Michelle faces her ex-husband in the courtroom for the first time. That's right after this short break. Stay with us. All the Wiser is a one-for-one podcast. Every episode, we donate $2,000 to our guest's favorite charity. And today, no-brainer, we are donating to Gabrielle's Wings. Gabrielle's Wings is a nonprofit dedicated to giving children of color in systematically vulnerable communities the kind of experiences, access, programs, and exposure that Gabrielle had during her short life. You can find out more about them at gabriellewings.org.
So Neil was sentenced. Eventually, he was charged with second-degree murder and with a sentence of 25 years to life. Yes. And you spoke in the courtroom with him there and gave a victim impact statement standing before him. Why was that important to you? And can you share what you said, the essence of what you said? I started writing the victim impact statement probably 30 days after this happened. I would leave myself little notes. I knew this was going to be my one and only chance, not just to a judge, but to him, for him to hear not just what he did, because he never pled guilty. He pled not guilty. And as an aside, and it's something I think from an advocacy standpoint, I'm going to focus on. It was second degree murder only because in New York State, first degree murder is reserved for certain types of cases, like an act of terrorism, if you tamper with a witness, if you kill someone in law enforcement. So a child's death does not weigh in New York State what some other murders do. I'm glad you said that, because when I read that, I was so confused. If this doesn't qualify, what does? Yeah, I'll never forget my dad saying, I don't know what greater act of terrorism you could, you know, conduct than murdering a seven-year-old little child. So that's something that I've been praying about. And from an advocacy standpoint, I think, you know, we may not be able to agree on much in this country, but I hope we can all agree that children's lives should be valued at the highest level. Um, So yeah, he is only serving 25 to life and does not have life without the possibility of parole. Because while it's a class A felony, it is not considered first degree murder in this state. But to your question about the victim impact statement at the sentencing, I, again, rallied the army. I had many people write the judge about Gabrielle. I shared this book of kindness that her classmates made for me that told me so many of the stories that I learned about her grabbing someone off of the buddy bench or being their first friend that spoke English first Um, and not Spanish, so many beautiful stories and little drawings from these second graders I shared with the judge. But the victim impact statement was my moment to stand up for Gabrielle. At her memorial services, I stood up for her in a different way. I stood up for her out of love, out of respect, to tell her story. And this victim impact statement was standing up for her as that mama bear and ensuring that the gravity of what had happened was said out loud, and yet that what was also said out loud was, you lost, you lost. And so, you know, paraphrasing, I said to Neil, I am going to spend the rest of my life ensuring that those 26 hours I spent in labor over that loving, beautiful child were not in vain, and that what you did did not destroy her, it did not destroy me, that her name is spoken around the world through the nonprofit I've started in her name, that you lost, that you lost. You did the most evil, most vile, most wicked thing that a father could do, and yet you were unsuccessful. You were successful in removing her physically from this world. What you were not successful in was removing her beautiful spirit. Yeah, I can imagine how difficult that was and how empowering speaking those words were. I hope it was for you. It was. It was It was terrifying. It was empowering. But it was one of those days where, you know, when I talk about being a hope warrior, where I was, where I was armed. I was armed with the words. I was armed with steel in my veins. I was armed with loving friends and family in the courtroom. He never directly looked at me, but he heard every word. And the judge heard every word. I walked out feeling like, I had represented Gabrielle to the best of my ability and had fought for her to the best of my ability. 
During this time, and grief is not a linear process, it is a life's work and something I know is a day-to-day and week-to-week reality. But I'm curious in those months and early years, what was the most healing for you in the darkest of times? You know, I was able to find a trauma specialist early on. I knew that a grief counselor would not be enough. I knew that this was not just regular old-fashioned grief. Been there, done that, right? You know, it's where working in a field of specialty and knowing people makes such a profound difference. And, And again, when I think about gratitude, which I do think about every day and thought about every day even then, my gratitude for having amazing, powerful, resourceful people in my life who could help me with things like finding a kick-ass trauma therapist, which I did. So one of the first things she said to me and continued to say to me for quite some time was that there wasn't a playbook. And that gave me the freedom to know that one day surviving could be having one too many drinks and passing out. One day surviving could be going on a good run. One day surviving could be inviting people over and celebrating Gabrielle on her birthday. One day that could be inviting people over and then canceling at the last minute and being in bed all day because I couldn't handle it. And so I think the first thing was giving myself the freedom and the grace to feel how I felt and to do whatever I needed to do in that moment and making sure those that were closest to me understood that. And there were many people who were ready to schlep out from Manhattan on a train to come visit me in New Rochelle, who got a call a couple of hours before with me saying, I love you, but I can't do this today. Um, And they loved me enough that that was okay. From the very first day, I started going out, you know, I didn't sleep much. So around four or five in the morning, I would get up at that point early on, there was a house full of people. And I would go outside with a Bible and a blank journal. And because I've written my whole life, I would just write and pray and cry. That became a daily ritual. So that I held on to. I had a group of close girlfriends who I would send a devotional to almost like it was homework every day that, you know, by 9am, I had to find a devotional that I could send to these friends. I I still do it almost every day. It's been almost six years. And I think for me, it was something, it gave me something I knew I had to do. It forced me to look for something encouraging. But I, I gave myself that kind of homework assignment to keep going. And the other thing really early on, and this was learned behavior from my parents and my grandparents, who in different ways had lives of service through nonprofit foundations and through working in ministry, I figured out how to get out of myself. So two months after I lost Gabrielle, her eighth birthday should have happened. I knew that was one of the first heart-ripping, soul-wrenching benchmarks. So I arranged on that day to give a donation to the Girl Scout house where she had spent so much time. I didn't want to get out of bed. I didn't want to go anywhere, but I knew this would make me do it. And so I really pushed myself. And what I found was that getting outside of yourself and helping other people and other children, especially in my case, became like oxygen for me. You know, seeing their little faces both hurt and healed at the same time, The first Christmas after I went on a mission trip to Belize and, you know, I would pick up a child who was about the weight Gabrielle had been and like your body almost knows instinctively about swinging them on that hip. And it felt wonderful and broke my heart all at once. But I just kept going. And when I couldn't keep going, I said it out loud And other folks sat there with me or laid there with me or cried there with me. But that, frankly, has been the day by day ever since this happened. And somehow, somehow, over time, I've 
been able to reimagine what my life could look like. It's something that I've written about. It's something that's so important to me that other people understand after tragedy, after loss, after trauma, that there are some chapters you don't get to write. You don't get a vote, but that you can you can own the narrative, that you can take it back and you can decide what those next blank pages will have on them. So your work with Gabrielle's Wings, the nonprofit that you created to really bring joy and opportunity to, as you said, it kids in underserved communities who look a lot like Gabrielle and don't have access to the things she had access to. And I was looking at a video of a playground and there was a beautiful butterfly sculpture and there's these graffiti mm-hmm. walls with rainbow and there's a buddy bench and a garden and her name is just, I can only imagine channeling your energy into that, to that extension of her, to that remembrance of her, that that would be the sort of antidote to the tireless battle of sitting in the grief. That's exactly right. And you know, you asked me earlier about describing who Gabrielle was and what I want in the work that Gabrielle's Wings does is to create for children that didn't have the privilege, frankly, that my daughter had. As an African-American girl, she had access and privilege that, frankly, a lot of children that look like her don't have. And so by offering scholarships, by offering play spaces that are equipped for children of all abilities, by offering learning spaces and peace corners on three continents so far, our goal is to get that glint of sunshine that I saw in my baby's eyes, in the eyes of children who deserve to have the same around the world. And so that's the work that we're doing. And it is my fuel, a hundred percent. It is my fuel. Before we get to my final questions, you know, my hope with this podcast is that people feel less alone in their pain and suffering. They glean hope and wisdom from brave people like you sharing your story and your journey. I also think there is an opportunity for us to learn from people with deep experience of how we on the outside can show up better for people who are in deep trauma, pain, and suffering. One of the things is people's discomfort and almost inability to be in proximity of that level of trauma and grief. And you described it almost as if they subconsciously think it's contagious. So I would imagine, or I know there would be well-intended people who wanted to do something, but that fear, the discomfort of being near you because of what you had experienced compelled them to stay away. Absolutely. You know, there, there was that, right? You know, I'm a class mom. You know, I, I, my house was the Kool-Aid house. I had the Christmas parties and the Halloween parties. And so there was the unspoken of people who had children Gabriel's age who had been in the house, who had been around Neil, where I felt like there was almost this questioning and judging of of what they didn't know about what had gone on. I think it's always made me defensive. I've always, you know, really clearly said, listen, there was no domestic violence. I I couldn't have seen this coming. You know, I, I feel... I feel compelled to to those parents, those moms who I spent time with. I, I didn't see this coming. There was no way I could have known. And I shouldn't feel that way. But that's, you know, that's my stuff. That's one of the things I carry. And there were people who I wasn't as close to. I talk about 
in my book, one of the moms, uh, Cindy, who I've become good friends with, but was just another mom that I would pass in like your, you know, half coma-like state as you drop a child off or, or pick a child up from school. And because of her own life experiences, while they were not similar to what happened to me and to Gabrielle, because she had grown up and dealt with trauma, she was able to sit with me and sit with it in a way that some people who at the time I I was closer to were not able to. And so I think my earlier experiences with grief and losing my mother and my grandmother set me up to understand without judgment, frankly, that, you know, there would be provision, there would be people, there would be the love and support that I needed. It may not always come how I thought it would. It may not always come from who I thought it would. Certainly, there are times you're disappointed in people, but that it would be there. And then there were a whole host of other people. And, you know, one of my jokes from day one has been, one day I'm going to write the darkest Netflix special ever, um, comedy special, because people say and do crazy stuff, like in the name of trying to be helpful. You know, I remember someone when we finally had that first awkward lunch after several months later saying, top 10 funerals I've ever been to. And I just had to burst out laughing. And I was like, that was the most New York agent crap you could ever say in this universe. And by the way, he meant it as a compliment. Wacky, wacky thing to say, but he meant it as a compliment. So I think I have become a master in interpreting intention versus focusing on what's said. Now, having said that, there are also those because I can speak about it I guess, in a way that people find articulate, that they mistake for not being emotional, that people have asked me crazy questions. People have asked me grotesque questions about what happened. And, you know, I had to build some boundaries and space to say, you know what, if that sort of macabre true crime piece is important to you, I would Google me. Why don't you just Google me? So people, you know, you get you get it all. You get complete strangers that send donations and handwritten notes. You get unbelievable, heroic acts of kindness and love from friends and coworkers and family. You get people who are so narcissistic and self-involved that they somehow make it about them. You know, you get it all. And I think learning how to sift through it and take what you need and not take personally the things you don't need is really, really important. I love that distinction because I think sometimes people say nothing because they're so desperately afraid of saying the wrong thing versus if my intention is curiosity about the details, why'd he do it? um, That's a very different starting place. Absolutely. And, you know, I I think what's really important for anyone who may hear this, who has someone in their life that is going through trauma, um, as we all will at some point, if we're not right now, being able to be honest and vulnerable yourself, to me, is the starting point. Everyone is different. There are no hard and fast rules. But I think your ability to say to someone you love, I'm not going to pretend to understand what you're going through. There are no words I know that I can say that will make a difference or offer comfort, but I'm here in any way that that's helpful. If that's running to the store, if that's sitting through a bad movie, I I want to be here. I don't know how to be here, but I want to be here for you. And you know what, that requires vulnerability on behalf of that person, right? Who, whoever this survivor of trauma is, they are ripped open with their guts out for display. They have no choice in their vulnerability. If you choose to meet them in vulnerability and admit you don't know what the F to say, that you're scared, that you don't want to mess up, people will appreciate that. People will appreciate your honesty and your vulnerability, You've talked about giving yourself permission to live and permission to love, and that that was a process to get to a place where you could feel happiness without somehow feeling it was wrong to experience happiness. 
you've described it as a battle within itself. For sure. You have given yourself permission to live and to love. So where are you in your life today as far as love and living? So I am happily and peacefully (laughs) married to an amazing man named Axel, who I met several years ago, and we have been married for almost a year and a half. It was not something I was looking for. You know, people say to me, I don't know how you ever could trust again. You know, it's kind of like if you've ever been in a bad accident, at some point you're going to get behind the wheel and you could get in another bad accident. But I think love, not necessarily relationship or marriage, but seeking love and joy are so fundamental to our survival, to our healthy survival, that we have to be open to them when they show up. I'm grateful that I found someone who, because of their own trauma, has worked on themselves, who is able to sit with my pain, with my bad moments, with my bad days. When I get a call that, you know, kind of torpedoes my spirit that day, that he is brave enough and strong enough and vulnerable enough to sit in those spaces with me. You know, we have talked about possibly starting a family, which I am a few years older than my mother was when she died. I could have never imagined thinking about that at 53, but I couldn't have imagined any of this, right? And so, again, I think like just trying to have the ability to see the white, clear sheet of paper without the imprints of whatever you wrote before. So I'm incredibly grateful. I'm incredibly grateful for love. I'm incredibly grateful for great friends. You know, there is not a minute that goes by where I don't think of Gabrielle. I'm surrounded by pictures everywhere in my house, on my phone. Her doll, who was her best friend and partner in time from birth, Barbara, um, who I write a lot about, is sitting right here looking at me while I do this interview. So there isn't a moment where I forget ever that I had this beautiful little girl who was horrifically murdered, and that I am living every day to ensure her name is lifted up. Yet, I am open to love and hope and joy and all of the things that make life livable. I read about your wedding and that there was an empty seat I don't think it was empty, but there was a seat in the front row for Gabrielle to be there with her spirit. Yes. And so I loved that. It's clear to me that there is never a moment when she isn't with her mom. Absolutely. And, you know, I I do believe, I don't think we understand, I mean, how can we, if there's more, is there a great beyond, is there another realm, but I choose to believe that the spirits of those we love are close. And so I derive comfort knowing that she's with her grandmother, that she's with my mom. What do you hope people take away when you share your story? I think the most important thing is to understand that we all will experience grief and trauma and loss. And whether that's a loss of health or a relationship or a job, I don't choose to put a meter on grief and loss. There's no rankings. Our life experiences are our life experiences. And for me, what is key is knowing that while what you thought your life was going to look like is gone. Maybe you can take some of it with you, maybe some things you'll never see again. There's more, there's more. And the key is imagining what the other side can look like. It doesn't happen overnight, it's not easy, but finding it within yourself over time 
to have the courage to imagine a new life, imagining a different type of life, not better. People don't get replaced. Loss doesn't get replaced, but having more. And that's the message I think that is so important for people to hear. Thank you, Michelle, for the honor and privilege of you sharing this conversation with me and with our listeners and introducing us in such a beautiful way to your daughter. Can you tell anyone and everyone listening where they can find your book and where they can learn more about Gabrielle's Wings? Absolutely. So the book is The Other Side of Yet. It is available wherever books are sold. I'm a big fan of bookshop.org because they support indie bookstores. And Gabrielle's Wings, the website is gabriellewings.org. One word, gabriellewings.org. We will include links to all of the above in our show notes. And thank you again, and God bless you. Oh, thank you so much. This was wonderful. God bless you too. Thank you for listening to this episode with Hope Warrior, Michelle Horde. If you were touched by this story and would like to share any thoughts with our community, you can find us on Facebook at All The Wiser Community. And don't forget to tune in next week when our producer Erica and I will share our thoughts and reflections about this episode and more. All the Wiser is produced by Erica Gerard of Podkit Productions. And that was John LaSala, our editor and composer. But our associate producer is Tara Daigle. That's right, Erica. And that just leaves us with our fearless host, Kimmy Culp. That's me. And until next time, take care of yourself and each other. Support for this podcast and the following message come from Corient. Corient provides wealth management services centered around you. They focus on exceeding your expectations and simplifying your life. Corient has been helping high achievers just like you enjoy their lives more fully, preserve their wealth, and provide for the people, causes, and communities they care about. As one of the largest integrated fee-only registered investment advisors in the U.S., Corient has deeply experienced teams in 23 strategic locations. Corient has extensive knowledge spanning the full spectrum of planning, investing, lending, and money management disciplines. Leverage Corient's exclusive network of experts to craft custom solutions designed to help you reach your financial goals, no matter how complex they may be. Real wealth requires real solutions. For more information, connect with a wealth advisor today at Corient.com. That's C-O-R-I-E-N-T.com. Corient.com. You know how to book flights and hotels. All you're missing is a tool to plan the travel experiences you'll have once you arrive. That's why you need Viator. Book guided tours, excursions, and more in one place. There are over 300,000 travel experiences to choose from, so you can find something for everyone. And Viator offers free cancellation and 24-7 customer support for worry-free travel. Download the Viator app now and use code Viator10 for 10% off your first booking in the app. Find travel experiences for you. Do more with Viator.